Welcome to Winning Slowly, a podcast about culture, technology, religion, ethics, and art. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. Today, we're going to talk about three things. First, we're going to talk about tech people beating each other up about their writing, and then about non-tech people beating each up about their writing, and then just about people beating each other up about their writing. Uh, then we're going to talk about how artists and their careers have a uh, slightly different uh, relationship to each other than previously in the early 90s or even in the early 2000s. So we're going to talk about how artists, musicians kind of stance themselves in relationship to careers. Finally, we're going to deal with the very sad news that our fun favorite startup editorially is shutting down and use this as a launching point to talk about business models and generally how the tech industry works in these kinds of areas and ways that we wish it worked better. Before we get there, we had one fun piece of feedback from a listener. We discussed last time how we have this extraordinary degree of impermanency in the internet and one of my acquaintances commented that this inspired him. He was going to print off stone tablets of copies of his entire blog and FedEx them the world over to make sure that they lived on in perpetuity. Yeah, I'm really excited about this, and I'm really looking forward to getting like a $90 box That's on my right. doorstep. I want one so I can bury it in my yard. <laughs> right in the front yard. <laughs> uh, yeah, so let's jump right into it. I was reading on Medium the other day that various articles, as I usually do on Fridays, and I came across one that talked about how there's this controversial relationship between entrepreneurs and writing. So some people say that if you're an entrepreneur, you should definitely be writing a blog, you should be um, active on social media, you should be writing. Um, there are other people um, who say that if you're working on writing your blog or being super active on social media, then you're not actually, quote unquote, making something. Um, you're, you're just, you know, wasting your time. You're not really being an entrepreneur. Um, and so as a person who both, you know, makes things, um, I've run Kickstarters and um, I've released albums and um, and a person who writes things in that, um, you know, I've been running a blog for over 10 years and, you know, I count this as a form of writing itself. Um, this is kind of a, a, a weird distinction that we can say that you can either write or you can either do things. And it kind of jarred me, um, especially since this isn't the first piece that I've seen that kind of talks about this this distinction. And there's even like some shaming going on between like entrepreneurs who are talking to other entrepreneurs saying you shouldn't be doing that and um, kind of the pushback and then the pushback on the pushback and then the pushback and the pushback and the pushback. And it just gets all very, <laughs> very echo chambery. It just gets very like claustrophobic. And it just seems like it's not a conversation that eventually means anything. It's just a bunch of people arguing with each other. And so I was – I thought this was very interesting and I brought it up to Chris who pointed out that this is not only a phenomenon that goes on in tech. Right. It's easy because we're fans of tech to see it in the tech world. But while it's true that it happens in tech startups, interestingly, the same week that this Medium piece was posted, there was a pretty well-read piece by Nicholas Kristof arguing that, well – 
look at you academics, you're just off there in your ivory tower and your publications are inaccessible to the public and we need more, quote, public intellectuals in your midst and you need to be serving the public and particularly orienting this at folks in political science, etc. And of course, this isn't exactly a new refrain either. The idea of the ivory tower academic is pretty old in no small part indicated by the use of the word ivory tower to describe it. Obviously, this idea has been around for a while. What struck me as interesting in putting these two up next to each other is just how very, very human this is. Someone writes something, really about just about anything, in a field in which someone else has some degree of interest, and inevitably it shows up for critique. Your writing is maybe good enough, maybe not. You know, part of Christoph's critique was your writing is insufficiently engaging, it's overly technical, etc. But it's not doing what I think your writing should be doing. It's not accomplishing these public policy ends, or it's not actually building whatever cool technology is going to save the world, or make you a couple bucks on the app store, or whatever right. it is that you're supposed to be doing. Right. Yeah, I'm always wary when there's like the things you're supposed to be doing in whatever field of, uh, you know, publishing or creating or media um I mean, not not to put that into an ethics realm but purely in a like a careerist realm like when there are these like hard maxim of these are the things you should be doing especially in such an intensely creative realm as you know writing or you know even the flip side being an entrepreneur creating ideas doing techie type things like having these like hard maxims and saying like because i don't do this you shouldn't do this either like right. i just I just think that's kind of a weird thing that people would even come up with in this field that otherwise praises all sorts of creativity. It seems particularly odd from my perspective as someone who has been blogging for the last many years. Uh, blogging is, one, a fairly unique form of writing in that it doesn't require the kind of long, dedicated sessions that writing an essay for the New Yorker does. Which is not to say that blogging doesn't require serious effort or concentration. It's just a different form of writing. But I've found in the last seven odd years that blogging can be expiatory. Blogging can help me think through things. Blogging often helps me work out issues I'm having, whether it's in a tech problem or it's working through some theological point. And lest it be said that I'm some oddity or that this is a product of modernity. Well, no less a famed thinker than Augustine was famous for saying that he thought by writing. And I think this is true for a lot of people who write and a lot of people who continue to blog, even as maybe we've hit peak blog sometime in the last couple of years. For some of us, <laughs> writing is how our brains process most effectively, not by sitting down and looking at a whiteboard or by sitting down and staring off into space, but by turning our thoughts into words. And the very act of doing that, for me, often helps me figure out what I think about a topic or figure out how to express an idea or how to solve a problem when I'm programming. Yeah. I mean, I think those are all totally true things. And like part of the thing that, um, you know, besides its inherent benefits that I agree with you on, I think it was just fascinating to look at how the tech community polices itself or like right. sees the opportunity to police itself or desires to police itself. I just thought that was a really weird kind of, um, you know, sociological 
thing that, you know, this community has very loose bounds. Obviously, you can come in and out of it if you're like, you know, in you count yourself an entrepreneur and you start, you know, interacting with these people on Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. That's really all you need to be in or out of this sort of community um, in terms of, you know, interacting with these sorts of texts, blogging in particular. I mean, obviously there are, you know, startup communities that are inaccessible to the average person who just starts, you know, tweeting at Ev Williams. But um, <laughs> right. on on the, the, the basic level of being part of this textual interactive community, um, that can be a part of this conversation about whether we or not we should be blogging. Um, I just think it's very um, interesting that like there's there's even a competition at all. There's even like this desire to like win something or like because mm. there's there's really not any reason to go around saying like, hey, you stop blogging. You should be you right. should be working. Like, right. The, it's not like your boss coming over and saying like, "Oh, hey, I see you blogging over there. We're just supposed to be coding. Go code." Like these are just like it's just a network of of people who may or may not know each other in um, anywhere from not at all to extreme closeness ways. So I think it's it's you know the the writing shaming is kind of unique in its own sort of way but i think the the most fascinating thing and this goes for you know for christoph's piece too is that there's this really weird kind of community life that appears around these sorts of issues of writing of mm -hmm. creating mm -hmm. um and i mean i think that's i mean i mean far be it for me to say that we just discovered community um but <laughs> like right. it's it's interesting to me that there's there are these sort of constraints that, you know, people apparently feel deeply enough about to respond to. Like, mm -hmm. you know, because if somebody wrote a blog post saying Stephen Caradini should stop writing independent clauses, I would just write another independent clauses post. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't actually respond to this particular comment, I don't think. I don't know. Um, so I think it's interesting that this kind of amorphous tech community um, – has kind of asserted kind of some boundaries or at mm. least some ins and outs to say like I'm sufficiently a part of this community that I'm going to respond to this particular blog post. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting in reading the Kristoff piece by contrast was you have the same kind of phenomenon in a lot of ways in academia, though of course the boundaries on academia are much, much, much less fluid in that, by and large, you have to either have or be working toward a PhD to really be a serious voice in this field. You don't get to be an academic thinker in our current context without that. And yet you have the same kind of boundary setting or attempted boundary setting of someone saying, you should be like this. Now, what was different in this case is Christoph is an outsider. He's not an academic. He's a journalist. Mm-hmm. And you have this person coming in and saying, this is what your writing should be like. And and so you have sort of the inverse of the situation that came up in this particular instance in the tech community. It's not an internal debate. It's an external person coming in from the outside and saying, well, you're not writing the kind of thing you should be. And of course, to my great amusement, a lot of the responses that came out from academics were, well, very much at a popular level. And quite a few of them were on dare I say it, blogs, which was precisely the kind of thing Christoph was saying, you should be doing this. Mm -hmm. The contrast between the two that I found interesting was, okay, you've got an outsider telling a very closed community. And on the other hand, as you just point out, you have insiders talking to their sort of fluid open community. 
but the analogy between the two is the same. You have this idea that there are kinds of uses of writing time that are appropriate or not appropriate given in particular community. And as you said, there's an ethical side to that, which is a different issue. Yeah. But just this idea that for some reason, your particular field obligates you to act in certain ways as though the field itself has these constraints on it, rather than being composed of humans who get to decide what to do with the field. There's no self-legitimating aspect of writing in the technology field that says you have to be doing this or you're not really in the tech field or you're not really serving the tech. What is the tech field? The tech field is just a bunch of people who decide what the tech field is. So it's not as though there's some inherent constraint in being a t in technology or being in the startup thing. There's not inherent value in not writing versus writing in the yeah. same way that there's not necessarily inherent value in writing for a broad public audience versus writing the kind of esoteric things that academics do, which may not make a big difference to the broad public today, but in 20 years could be setting an enormous difference for the public. Yeah. And there's also the element that you could say that this sort of argument is, you know, kind of that that boundary setting and that like field creating that, you mm. know, from a from an insider's perspective, from the tech perspective, this makes a lot more sense, right? Like someone is appointing themselves as an important person in this particular right. field and saying, like, these are the ways that tech is going to be now. That makes a little more sense to me, even if I don't, you know, like it necessarily ethically or, you know, personally. I mean, that's a little bit more sociologically normative than, you know, an outsider coming in and saying, like, guess what? I figured out your field better than you did, and this is what it should be. How about that? Um, you know, I mean, which obviously as humans we know that exists all the time, um, but it's it just seems an, an a stranger intrusion along a level of strange intrusions, which, you know, I think both of these are. Right. So, but yeah, overall, I, I was just struck by the fact that because of the the fluidity of the um, culture surrounding this point, and because of the kind of zero-sum, like, push-pull, never-get-anywhere aspect of this particular argument, um, because it is so personally bound, and because there are no, like, you know, corporate constraints saying that this is the way things must be, I just felt that the whole argument was kind of a wasted space. Not in terms of, you know, this, um, this author shouldn't have written this um, because that would be, like, directly contradictory to the thing <laughs> we're saying right now. Um, right. But I'm saying that this whole argument seems to be, you know, like, pounding on an open door. Like, there's, there's really, like... If you want to blog, walk through the door. Just blog. If you don't, walk on by. Like there's, you know, there's just kind of a whole bunch of noise around something that, you know, might as well just be, you know, I do want to do this. I don't want to do this. Right. And I think the notion that it should be anything more than I want to do this, I don't want to do this, is really the, as you say, it's the weirdest thing about this. Again, there's nothing inherent in being a technology worker, being a startup worker, that means what you do or don't do on your own time, or even what you choose to do or not do as a company in terms of explaining yourself, etc., really has any effect on any other company in the sphere. 
So yeah. who cares? Yeah, like Siasto, which is a company that I follow, has a great blog that I read all the time. Um, you know, Draft, which is another startup that I'm interested in, does not blog, and they send me occasional emails. Like, you know, it, it, I don't value one over the other because, you know, they give me whatever they give me from their ways that they, you know, give me information. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so I think you're right. I think there's not a whole lot of of reason to, you know, kind of lock down this particular, like, this idea as we should blog, we should not blog, this is what you should be doing, this is what you should not be doing. Um, and I think that, you know, the more time we spend on it, um, the more it just it just becomes like hot air. I don't know. but Right. And I think to sum up, the real issue is, as a, a matter of personal integrity, am I spending my time well in a way that advances the things that I say and claim are most important to me? Yeah. And if writing is part of that, great, go do that. And if it's not, and you're just using it as a way of wasting time and making excuses for not doing the things you should be doing, well, then stop doing it. But that, again, that's a matter of personal integrity and ethics. There's nothing in these fields or any fields, really, that's an inherent constraint on thou shalt do this unless your employer tells you. Right. So move along, guys. Yeah. So that that moves nicely into our next point, which is also about people telling you what you should be doing with your life. Uh, So I was reading on Pitchfork a couple weeks ago uh, an interview with the band Future Islands um, just about their new album that's coming out called Singles. Um, just about their their work ethic, their last few albums, how they've gone about things. And they made this really interesting statement that um, they wanted to make a career in music, and so they were going to do careerist moves. Like they didn't they weren't apologetic for the fact that they, you know, were gonna go on late night TV shows. Um, they weren't <laughs> apologetic for, you know, doing these sorts of things that bands do when they want to make careers. Um, and so they were contrasting that to this idea of selling out, which is... Oh, you know, man! <laughs> you're part of the man now! I know, right? You're making art for money! I know. It's this... Uh, it, it's that specter that hangs over all authenticity, um, lest you go astray and start working for the man. Um, but yeah, so it's it's really interesting that the... The, the last, you know, 20 years have seen kind of an unraveling of this idea of selling out. So, like, you know, one of the most critically and uh, publicly acclaimed bands uh, of the last five or ten years, uh, OK Go, is, like, the poster child for this. They have they, – all of their beloved music videos are funded by some organization or another, um, be it State Farm or uh, Chevy or you know, it's just that's just how they make their money. And, and so, as a side note, we will put some links to those in the show notes because some of them are just awesome. They're they're pretty great. Um, I I do love the Chevy Sonic one. It's pretty amazing. Um, but uh, but yeah, so it's just really it's this really interesting thing that like, do we um, do we care about selling out? Does selling out mean anything anymore, or did it ever really mean anything beyond like this? you know, kind of defensive stance against um, the unwashed masses. Um, Right. I think the idea that ends up coming up, and we see this currently a lot in, quote, hipster culture, but it's long been a part of more indie music, 
And this really seems to be a reaction to the advent of pop music as a cultural and economic thing in the last several decades. And by several, I mean quite a few now, obviously. Yeah. But as soon as music crossed the line from being... And and by music here, I'm referring to the kinds of styles that now fall under pop, because there were historical things analogous to this, you know, in terms of working for patrons, etc., back in centuries past but but really looking at these kinds of popular level music things that once upon a time would have been folk creations would have been very personal very tied to the community as they start exploding out into these increasingly large increasingly wealth generating mediums yeah and in so doing as they become susceptible to all of the temptations to uh a lack of artistic integrity because you want to do what makes the most money rather than what you actually care about as an artist, there's naturally a backlash against that. And I think that's something we both would agree is a real danger and is something that artists have to be mindful of. But it it can can also be a good thing. And maybe it's something that artists need to be mindful of in the sense of, yes, this affects things, but maybe it's not something they need to be mindful of in the sense of fear this and run the other way. Yeah, that's true. Although, it, I mean, it depends on what type of music you want to be making, right? Like, true. Katy, Katy Perry is not worried about selling out because, like, that's the whole point of <laughs> Katy Perry is to sell a lot of albums. I mean, right. this is this is not the sort of thing that we apply, you know, selling out to unless you want to go way back into the archives and see that Katy Perry was once Katy Hudson and released a CCM album and that didn't do so well and reinvented herself as Katy Perry. Um, We don't look at Katy Perry and think, oh, an auteur. And yes, we had to look that up and see how it was pronounced on Google because we've read the word a thousand times and neither of us had any idea how to pronounce it. Yeah. And because Chris trusts Google so much, we're going with that pronunciation. (laughs) So... Uh, but yeah, so there, there's not this this auteur kind of you know mentality going on for Katy Perry or you know Miley Cyrus or even you know things like you know Imagine Dragons or these other pop bands right. we just know as pop bands. And so that's I mean Mumford and Sons is an interesting case in this perspective in that you know they made music that they wanted to make and then it got really famous. And then they went out and made the same album again, essentially, and it was <laughs> and it was great. And I'm not knocking that. Right. Um, if you, if if you've got a key, keep turning it in the door. Um, but uh, yeah, and so you know, then there's all this backlash against you know Mumford and Sons for you know their bigness, essentially. I mean, they didn't. You even, made money. <laughs> yeah, they didn't even change. I mean, they. Uh, like some people were all up in the arms about like their Christian lyrics, but they were—I mean—they were totally there in the first album. If anything, um, they're more explicit in the first album. Yeah, and so well, I mean, there are some like in the second album, there are some like specific references, but right. you know, thematically, they're much more explicit in the um, in the first album. But so you know, people found things to quibble with, but I really think that they were just arguing with the fact that they got big, right? Right. You know, they play these gigantic shows now. And so, you know, it's this weird, I mean, I mean, no one's going to accuse Mumford and Sons of quote unquote selling out, or maybe some people did. I don't know. They're still on a smaller label, um, which is like a imprint of a bigger label, but that gets into way complicated things we can talk about some other time. Um, 
but it's just it's just this fascinating interplay between like how do we as people um you know deal with the fact that our our favorite bands whether they are small or big are liked by lots of other people um and i mean to me as a person who covers music and covers small independent music like i'm really stoked when i see a band that goes on to be humongous like I got to see Bastille in uh, South by Southwest uh, last year, um, and ever since then they've been blowing up. And now they're on movie trailers, and they're in, you know, YouTube commercials and all this sorts of stuff, and they're great. Um, but there are people who are very upset about this because they felt like Bastille was their band, and now someone else owns it. Well, yeah, and that's very that's really weird to me. Um, I mean, I know that we're kind of like saying, like, hipsters. How weird is that, man? How <laughs> weird true. is that? But, I mean, from a sociological perspective, it's really kind of, you know, this, this strange way that we classify, like, what is acceptably big mm-hmm. to our own, like, comfort level. And then what is like, oh, too big, too big. Right. Now, now I have to hate it. And at what point does making a career become selling out? One of the points that this article made that I found fascinating was the point that they just blatantly said, look, we're making career moves, which as you and I've discussed before is not even exactly the same as saying we're going to make our money from this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a big difference between, you know, cash grabbing and, you know, building a sustainable model of, of work, um, of putting out work on a consistent basis and, you know, trying to generate audience. Um, And so that's why I think that it's very strange that like as bands are kind of adapting to this new media environment, kind of seeing themselves as working particular ways to create fan bases that stay and sustain, this whole idea of, you know, abandoning a band once they've gotten big just seems counterproductive both to the band and, you know, to the the listener, I mean, because now that this band is big, you can guarantee that they're going to be around for a while, or at least the musicians are going to be around for a while and go into other projects and things like that. Right. And so, you know, I don't see what the value of being able to say like, oh, they're too big now, unless there is some perceived like cheapening of their music to become, you know, popular. But I, I honestly can't think of anyone that made a subpar album in an attempt to get famous. Like, that's just not how it works. Like, no, you in can't... fact, it would tend to have rather the opposite effect. Let me make worse music so that I can become more popular. I mean, I can see that you might shift your style to a less esoteric style, but you still have to be putting out top-notch stuff if you're going to make it or already have tons of advertising money behind you. But that that's not really the kind of thing we're talking about here. Yeah, I just think that the the sort of mentality of how we listen to bands and how we categorize bands in our own minds has not yet caught up with the ways that bands have to make careers. Right. Um, and so it's not necessarily a young dude's game anymore where these bands just pop up and exist and then go away. And then we loved them, and then they were famous, and they live on in our hearts. That's just not. That's just not how it's. Uh, it, it's just not how bands want to be anymore. Not that they ever wanted to be that way, but you know. So, it's it's uh, it's it's still interesting back and forth between the listeners and and bands. I think resolving some of those 
you know, kind of unspoken or sometimes very loudly spoken tensions. So. And I'll be curious to see how it looks in another 10 years, because as you pointed out when we were talking about this before we started recording, how it looked in 1993 versus how it looks in 2014 are very different. Yeah. The the change in music distribution models and the effects of labels and all of those things have shifted the terrain so dramatically that it's it's just a different world now and it's impossible to say what the effects will be but that continues to happen and continues to happen in many ways at just the same kind of pace as it has been for the last 15 years who knows what it's going to look like in another 10 right all we right. can say is it's going to be different again mhm mhm yeah, so along those lines of having people tell you what to do, which is a now the theme of this podcast, apparently, um, or this episode, at least, uh, editorially is sadly shutting down. Um, they could not find a big enough audience for what they wanted to do. Um, they couldn't find a sustainable business uh, break-even point, or at least even a trajectory towards that point, and so they're shutting down. Editorially is a, a writing sort of app that's a community kind of editing process sort of space, um, not unlike um, Google Docs, not unlike um, you know Draft, but it's another one. Um, and frankly, in terms of user interface elegance, it was probably the best of the bunch. It was very user-friendly, it was easy to use, nicely designed, it worked pretty well. Steven and I both really liked it, neither of us actually used it. Which uh, might be part of the problem. Right. The And for me, one of the reasons I didn't use it was rather nerdy and strange, and it was that in the syntax they used, Markdown, for writing posts, they didn't have footnote support for a long time. And since most of my writing is academic, especially the kinds of writing that needs collaborative work for things like editing, well, I need footnotes. And they didn't have footnotes, so that was that. And they finally got them. I got really excited. And about two weeks ago, I logged in and noticed, oh, hey, they got footnote support. And then the week after that, they said, we're shutting down. And I was really, really sad because I was just getting ready to start using editorially. Yeah. But this whole thing... I didn't I didn't use it because I'm lazy. <laughs> I didn't get there. <laughs> this whole thing highlights an issue Stephen and I've been talking about offline for probably close to half a decade now, and that is the very very strange absence of a sustainable business model right up front with so many tech startups. And you can trace this back really well, I mean, I can't say Facebook? how far you can... Yeah, Facebook <laughs> at least, and possibly earlier. Facebook and Twitter are both very high-profile examples of tech startups that had zero business model when they started. And in fact, Twitter's got a founder, Ev Williams, who's no longer with Twitter. He now works on Stephen's new favorite thing, Medium. It is my favorite thing! M Medium, now, like Twitter, then... Like, in fact, I think Blogger was around before that and had the same problem until it got bought by Google. These are all things that Ev Williams has worked on. None of them have business models. In fact, about the time that people come in and sit down and say, okay, guys, we really need to think about how we're going to make money, Ev Williams seems to just book it and say, I'm going to go over there and do something else. I don't want to think about this. All of which is offered simply illustratively 
to point out how common this is in the tech industry. How many startups do we see? Instagram being another high profile example in the last couple of years. They come out of nowhere. They turn into hundreds of millions of users. And Tumblr. Tumblr is another perfect example. Yep. And then they have to figure out how in the world are we ever going to make money? They get all this venture capital where someone says, we'll invest in you. And usually to me at this point, it looks like we'll invest in you in hopes that you do really well and become really successful. And then Google or Facebook or Apple or somebody buys you and we get a really great payout out of it. But the vast majority of these companies don't seem to have any idea how to make money other than a sort of generic pie in the sky well maybe we'll do some kind of advertising thing and hope that works for us yeah and i don't get it i mean editorially sold me in part early on because i straight up emailed them and asked them and said are you going to go ad supported and they said no and i thought great i like non-ad supported but then i kept waiting and waiting and waiting for them to say how they were going to make money and they never said and then they never did and now they're going away yeah i mean I can understand that, like, there might be some aversion to, like, business plans and, like, big corporate things because, the you know, the, the first dot-com boom and bust does hang, you know, kind of in, like, the distance background over, like, all tech things. Like, right. um, but, I mean, I don't think that, like, a lot of people who are working in tech who started in the last four or five years really even have like a background that remembers oh yeah when all of us lost money i think that whole generation is kind of gone so i might be affording a little bit too much nicety <laughs> um but um and i don't mean that you know that there's no one from 2000 still working in tech because obviously there is but the mentality seems to have changed right um and so it's you know on the one hand, this is an instance of, you know, us telling people what to do. Like, go get a business plan, son. You should do that. <laughs> um, right. But at, at another level, like, you know, it's we both enjoy making things and it's really fun. And, you know, there's there's something to be said for, you know, I make things and then it's somebody else's job to make money from them. Right. So I think there's... And I think that's the temptation here. Yeah, I mean, but I don't know if it's if I mean, there it's it's conf I'm conflicted about this because to some extent, I think it'd be super fun to say like, you know what my job is? The first 2 years of any company. <laughs> That's much Make job. all the cool fun stuff and then leave. Yeah, I mean, that would be awesome. Like, and you know, if there are people who like then say, you know what my job is? Years three and four. Like, if there are those people in the world, then, you know, the Ev Williams and the, you know, Marco Arments of the world can <laughs> can make their things and then go make new things and just kind of trailblaze off into the distance, you know? Um, but at some level, like, you know, I kind of want stuff to be around after they're gone. So right. I don't know if, you know, this is necessarily the most sustainable way um, unless we start, you know, actively training people who, um, who, who want to be three year three and four people. Right. So, and I think that's really what gets me about the editorially thing. And, and really, honestly, it happens even when companies do make that jump and get bought by Google. Prime example from last year was email client. I really liked on the Mac called Sparrow team got bought by Google and well, 
all development on Sparrow immediately ceased. And this isn't me hating on Google. Google's far from the only one. It's just an example that comes quickly to mind. But yeah, that's why Mint is pretty terrible now. They got yeah, they got bought by Intuit. <laughs> and that kind of move in the tech space is just really disappointing. I mean, whether it's you get Aqua kill, Aqua killed, as you said, mm-hmm. Aqua hired usually turns into Aqua killed, or whether you don't ever have a funding strategy and you don't get acquired and your product just dies because of that, like happened with editorially. To me, that's a a loss to most everybody who might actually get value out of your product. And if editorially had had the discipline to have a business plan on day one, there's no guarantee they would have succeeded. But, and frankly, they may have. Uh, They haven't been public enough to know. Nothing they've said makes it look like they had a clearly outlined business plan from day one. And certainly none of their behavior looks that way. But in any case, a, a business plan isn't a guarantee that you'll succeed. But it gives you a shot, at least. I mean... At the most basic level, not having a business plan is like asking to fail, in my view. Well, eh, I mean... Unless you're, unless you're going to open source it or do other things. There, you can say, we want to be free forever and we don't care about making money. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's where the, the challenge comes, is that, like, at, at some level, like, anything that you say on day one is not going to be true in day 365. Like... That's there's just so much that changes when you're, you know, starting a company or making a thing. And so, you know, it's 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 tempting to say, like, we're going to make this thing and then we're going to get some money and then we'll make something up because, (laughs) you know, it's that's kind of what you're doing. You're making stuff up. You're literally making stuff up. So, you know, I, I have a little bit more sympathy for the uh the lack of a business plan, um, although you know, I it's it's tough to see good things go by the wayside. So to that degree, I would kind of, I get, I guess my stance is like, please get a business plan, <laughs> right? M- maybe I like you. Okay, <laughs> have it at least have it on your to do list. Yeah, I mean, yeah, come on. yeah. I mean, it's it's just uh, you know a- as the internet becomes mature and starts to be a part of the um, the regular society that interacts with society in you know increasingly interesting and contentious ways, which we'll talk about next time. Um, there's there's gonna be a point where you, venture capital is gonna have to say like this is not gonna work unless right. X Y Z right. um, because you know. We're going to get to a point where people start making like offline startups again, and it's going to be really cool and innovative. And people are going to be like, "Oh man, we need to not use the internet. That would be great." It's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, and I think right there with that, one of my concerns and one of my really significant concerns about this, to go to a point you made a few minutes ago, is I really wonder if we're heading toward another bubble and it's going to burst because. I just don't buy that this much money can keep floating around at companies that are going bust without something crashing eventually. Now, nah, man, there's $16 billion that WhatsApp is now in charge of. So they're going to keep the whole industry afloat right there. That's all I got. That's pretty much all I've got, too. I just can't, can't see how this is going to work out well. But, I mean... I think having a, a plan or committing that that needs to be one of the things that happens in your first year of business is 
a lot more sustainable than saying we'll figure it out as we go and then maybe never getting it figured out because here's the reality of it with the quality of product editorially had had i would have paid to use it i'd have paid an annual subscription to use it yeah but they never even gave me that chance and so yeah at, at that level they never even had the opportunity to start making money and they had lots of talented smart smart (laughs) <laughs> smarter than the way i'm talking right now they had lots of talented yeah. smart engineers on the project and designers on the project I, I don't get the impression they had really talented smart people figuring out hey what can we get people to pay us for this and that stinks because now i don't get to keep using their product and i want to and i'd have paid yeah. them and and i i don't want this to sound like we're shaming editorially no because, it's it's everybody like, they're just the example yeah because we like them like you said, Chris has emailed with them. Like, I, yeah. We, I was really we like happy them. with hearing from them. And I like all the people with whom I've had interactions on their team in other contexts, et cetera. You know, I tweeted at them and gotten tweets back about other things, though I'm sure I remember that more than they do because they're famous and I'm not. But they're great people and it's a great team. And we're mostly just sad because we really like them and wish they yeah. had succeeded. Yeah, it's true. So, you know as as the the industry the tech industry gets more and more folded into you know the way things actually work in the business industry um you know i think that we'll start to see some of that kind of swashbuckling ev williamsness um either fade out or be you know replaced kind of augmented by these people who you know come in and you know work with the thing afterwards so maybe we'll have uh ev williams dot two um <laughs> and he'll be that person will be successful and famous i don't know but well that is all we have for today thanks for listening to our podcast which is licensed under a creative commons license which means that uh we don't want you to take our stuff verbatim we do want you to take our stuff and copy it remix it uh make all sorts of new cool stuff out of it until next time i've been chris kreicho and i am and will be stephen caradini thanks for listening <laughs>